just want to do God's will. The kind of revolution that the world needs is a Christian revolution. If you want a miracle, you've got to expect it to happen. You're the recipients of God's grace and God's blessings, and you rejoice in that reality. Welcome to Life Today Live. Randy Robinson here, and this will be an interesting conversation. I can already tell you, when I got the book, a book called Orphaned Believers, uh, I thought, okay, what is this? Because to be honest with you, the whole deconstructing your faith thing makes me really nervous. At the same time, re-examining what you believe and maybe what you've been taught and comparing it with Scripture, I think, is very healthy. So between this, this sort of tension between destruction and refinement is where where is that right road well it's the one i'll just jump ahead it's the one that leads you back to jesus i'll say that but i've opened this one up and i thought okay what's what's she talking about here and there's there's only three parts and i went oh boy yeah that one's gonna light some people up um oh yeah that's a controversial one and then yeah okay i can see that i thought okay this will be fun so i said let's have sarah billups on the program and let her talk, and let's have a great conversation. So chat is open. Lucinda, Judy, great to have you guys already on here. You want to jump in if you're watching live, um, be a part of this lively conversation. Uh, do that if you're watching in the replay, as most of you do. Please leave a comment. Uh, I'd, I'd love to know what you think, as long as you're nice. Uh, if you're mean, you just get deleted. Sarah, great to have you on Live Today Live. Thanks, Randy. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, and after that weirdest introduction you probably ever had. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's jump right in to this one. Let's start. Okay, so this idea of orphaned believers, uh, and you put yourself in that category, kind of walk us through some of what led you up to the point of writing this book. Mm, yeah, you know, I, uh, I'm i a writer based in Seattle, been here for 18 years, grew up in the Midwest. And so, you know, I think when 2016 happened, when the election happened with when, you know, when Trump first came on the scene a little more publicly, when we started to hear rhetoric around, rhetoric around Christian nationalism and the insurrection and some of those other pieces, I just really thought I'm kind of in a Seattle bubble. I wonder what happened when I was growing up that could have led to some of the sort of conflict and tension and relational kind of breakage that I'm experiencing personally. And so I really wanted to look back at growing up in the 80s and 90s and try to uncover some of those pieces and see if I could draw a line into today. So I really look at end times culture, culture wars, specifically single issue voting, and then also consumerism. Um, but you know, for me, I when I say orphans believer, I just mean uh, Christians that look around the American church and wonder where Jesus is, you know, and so that could be a cultural orphaning. I mean, living in Seattle, if you're a Christian or go to church, it's probably not by accident. It's it's oftentimes exhausting to explain what you mean when you say you're a Christian, but not that kind. Um, there's a sort of cultural estrangement, sometimes also from Christian culture, or kind of like stadium church tours for some of us. And so there's that kind of cultural piece, but also a spiritual orphaning if you're in the Bible Belt, kind of like where I grew up, looking around and thinking, I'm not hearing a lot of formative real like food i'm not seeing a lot of fruit right now i just it feels like a cultural kind of right like marker of sunday but a little bit less formative so i, I kind of approach it from both of those angles so let's let's dive into one of my favorite topics and, and that is the end time stuff because i grew up you know in texas uh bible belt uh southern baptist um left behind 
you know, uh, the basically I didn't think I was going to see 30 when I was, you know, 15 because of the movies we were watching on Wednesday night at our church. Uh, and because of the eschatology and the, some of the, the theology I was hearing, it was like, oh yeah, the, the, God's going to burn this place up. So you just better be ready. Uh, and the older I got, the more I questioned that mainly I just shelved it and thought, uh, you know, you know, I know this is what we believe, but I didn't act like I believed it because I didn't really, you know, I didn't either didn't know or didn't believe it. How did, how did that play into your background? Yeah, well, you know, my dad uh, grew up in a reformed Jewish household in Indiana. He got saved pretty radically in the 70s um, at a Bible study on the book of Daniel. And um, <laughs> so, so it was certainly like rooted in prophecy then. He read a book that maybe some folks that who are watching have read called Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, yep. which at one point was the New York Times bestseller for so many weeks, it took over the joy of sex as like the top slot. And so there was an Orson Welles um, narrated film that showed on primetime TV that we were just talking yeah. about, Randy, before yeah. we <laughs> went live. And so he was really, he had a, a very powerful conversion, was in an apartment at this Bible city, ran to the parking lot, like fell on his face on the concrete and accepted Jesus, like a beautiful conversion. Mm -hmm. But it also went very hand in hand with the other book by his bedside table next to the Bible, which was The Late Great Planet Earth. And so by the time I came along in the late 70s, before I was in school, I was hearing messages about the rapture and the Antichrist and not taking 666 on my hand or forehead. And so we talked about end times growing up, like a lot of families talk about football. You know, it was a very frequent and common part of my spiritual formation that was really scary as a kid. And so even through high school, I would tell friends, I mean, I have this very distinct memory of being in an ice cream shop with my friend in my sophomore year of high school, we're like in the back booth, she ordered a banana split. And I told her the whole sort of way that I believed that the rapture would come. We went through all of that. We went through the seven year tribulation period. I mean, <laughs> by the time I got to the battle of Gog and Magog, her mouth was like hanging open. I can see the spoon like suspended midair. I mean, it was just um, a very intense part of my life that was scary, but also brought this feeling of exceptionalism or kind of like we were concerned for family and friends that weren't saved, but we knew what was going to happen. And so it was our duty to talk about it. But also it kind of felt like there was a position of power to know that we were going to be raptured and not going to die. And so there was this interesting dynamic of kind of all sorts of emotions, but it wasn't until college that I started to kind of question and rethink some of that, <laughs> some of that stuff. What do you, just looking back on that, because I mean, I experienced all of that too. Um, How do you how, how do you position that? Because he, I know a lot of people come to Jesus because they're scared of hell or scared of end times or scared of whatever. Um, and and I and I I don't I don't like that it's fear based the wrong kind of based fear, but I like that people come to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. What do you when you look back on on all of that, um, even on your dad in in where he was at? Um, where do you, what do you, how do you look at that now? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was, I was formed just like all of us by the church and by the gospel as a evangelical growing up, but I was also formed, my formation was an American formation as well. And so it reflected 
what was going on in larger culture. I mean, dad had come out of the the 60s, which were such a politically charged time yeah. into the 70s. We were hearing a lot when I was a kid. Of course, it was the Cold War and there was fear of Russia. And, yeah. you know, Reagan was talking about the apocalypse from speeches like it was really in the water. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, how I would answer that, it was hard to sort of separate my own formation as a Christian from just being a person living in the U.S. in that in that time and being the the daughter of a father that was very focused on it. And so I think that even if we would have had a formation spiritually or in a Christian way that was not based in fear, we still would have been hearing that message in a broader way. So I'm not sure how much of it could have been alleviated um, if we were still living through the 80s and what that meant, you know, and certainly with culture wars, not to jump ahead, but that kind of comes into play too. So Yeah, you do, you do know that Ronald Reagan was the beast because his name was Ronald Wilson Reagan which has six letters, six letters, and six letters. Well, <laughs> I write about that. I write about Mikhail Gorbachev's birthmark in the book as well. And how oh, yeah. it's kind of the great bear. So, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I had heard that one. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that one. I, I thought, didn't it look like a country, like some other country? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> uh, okay. So at what point do you, because you could have easily said, okay, that all that stuff is just weird and you know, 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 88 or whatever the year was, and they missed yeah. it. And all these false predictions that you and I both have lived through, uh, you could have just said, you could have thrown out the baby with the bathwater in a sense and gone, this is all, this is all garbage. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I don't like the fear. I, I don't, you know, the stuff's not yeah. coming true and just walked. And I think, I mean, we've seen people that have. Yeah. Uh, what, what made you decide, okay, I'm not walking away from it all. I'm going to try to do the hard work of sifting through and coming to an understanding for myself. Yeah. I mean, the experience that I had growing up was compounded and built upon when I got to Seattle. I moved here with friends. We thought we were going to start a house church or something in the early 2000s. But really quickly, it became clear that the city kind of assimilated us. And that's an idea that um, John Mark Homer and Mark Sayers talk about in their This Cultural Moment podcast. That's not mine, but just a sense that we thought we had a lot of young kind of white middle class optimism coming to this place, wanting to make a difference. But really quickly, folks started to use the term spiritual but not religious, which in a lot of ways, I think, is the term that maybe we would use like deconstruction today. Like mm -hmm. a lot of folks just kind of quickly assimilated to this place. And I began to wonder, what am I doing here? <laughs> what do I believe? I go to church on Sunday, but I just work downtown the other six days of the week or five days of the week. What's happening? Um, but it got to the point where I was so lukewarm that there was like, it felt like a physical weight on my shoulder. Like mm. I was carrying a bag. I mean, if there was a light under the bushel, it was, the flame was barely lit, you know? And so I, I realized either I have to be serious and pursue real formation and pursue Jesus, or what am I doing? Like what I'm wasting my life on a, on a myth. So for me, it's like, if what I believe, which is in a literal resurrection that Jesus came to earth and died, I believe in the virgin birth. Like if I actually take these things seriously, they should change me. They should change us. Mm -hmm. So it got to the point where I had to make a decision. Um, and for me, that's where a whole journey began really in my, about 10 years ago to, to, to pursue Jesus more seriously. So the answer is I'm still a Christian because I, I am totally compelled by the message and life of Jesus. And I think that can change everything. Walk me through a little bit of that, t that 10 year journey. I know uh, t 10 years in a couple of minutes is, not doing it justice entirely, but kind of hit some of the highlights because I, I know some people 
maybe where you're at, where you were at then, really at that point of I have to make a decision. Do I do I believe this or, yeah, or not? Yeah, I mean, the the truth is, um, the thing that changed for me. So I grew up with a real suspicion of Catholicism. That's kind of a, a yes. typical, a typical. <laughs> Wait, hang on. Okay, I'm sorry. Did you have the little comic books written by some guy named J.C. I think where he just used initials that had like that showed you how the nuns were, bear, yeah. you know, having children and burying them under the abbeys. Did you go? Did you see that one? Well, I'm going to be Googling that immediately after we're done. <laughs> no, I didn't have that. Okay. <laughs> but, I, you know, growing up, there was just a suspicion, or are Catholics really Christians, or we should be kind of careful of liturgy or of ceremony. Exactly. Anything that looked like it. <laughs> There's my dog barking. Um, okay. but, re- but, but really, um, it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I realized there are really beautiful, historic, formative practices around liturgy that can be really beautiful, around contemplative Christian practices, prayer, I started working with the spiritual director to really think about guided and visual prayer. I mean, I, I did a lot of praying in silence. Instead of asking God to do something for me, I just kind of shut up and and listened. And that was a really different posture, especially being a type A fast person that has been incredibly meaningful. So I just, um, I just kind of slowed down and started to pay attention. Interesting. Jack Chick was the guy's name and the book Alberto was the comic book. And Actually, I was looking at that while you were talking. Christianity Today has a whole expose on, on that. It was such a fraud. Anyway, um, what, I could get sidetracked on that way too easy, so I apologize to you guys watching. But in, in sort of this redefining of your Christianity and pressing into Jesus, because I think that is the answer uh, to, to, to let us mature in our faith, not deteriorate in our faith, uh, what kind of where did where did that lead you what kind of impact did it have on your daily life and even relating to those around you and in a tough you know not 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 as bible belt you know church friendly environment being up in seattle yeah i think i was i was really suspicious or expected i I had a defensive posture towards people for a long time um i was afraid of doubt because i thought doubt was the opposite of faith Mm. i was afraid that I would turn over a rock and something would jump out that would sort of change everything and I wouldn't be a Christian anymore. I was afraid that the thing that makes me me, which is my Christian identity, would shift and I would lose it, that I would they would go out of, like just fall out of my fingers. And so the I stopped being afraid of doubting. I started asking questions. Um, but I did that in a way where I circled back to Jesus. Like the book calls to account a lot of a lot of difficult things but i don't think that we're called to raise things up and to question just to burn everything down like i began in my own life to begin to raise up and call into question to come back to jesus and so i really tried to figure out how to stay focused on him and that was practically through prayer and silence in the morning through going on some spiritual retreats or some silent retreats through being engaged in church even though sometimes that's hard Mm -hmm. Um, because that's the thing that i would say about church like the thing I love about church is that it's not like Sunday brunch. I don't necessarily pick the people I'm with. Like I love the people that I go to church with, but maybe they're not like me. Like it's just, there's this wonderful lack of control. <laughs> and so if we, if we can find a healthy congregation, I think that can be very grounding too. Absolutely. Okay. I want to show you the book because I just mentioned it earlier. It's Orphan Believers. This is what it looks like close up by Sarah Billups. And, and by the way, if you if you get the Polaroid with the cassette tape unraveled, 
on the cover, then uh, you're of the same generation that will understand a lot of the context of these things. Uh, and and I, I love, Sarah, that you didn't just give up um, because I think when we hit those points, as someone who's watching right now says that they're, they're like, do I, do I believe or not? I think that's a good question. Uh, and I think it's one that we should lean into, not run away from. Uh, and, and I'm wondering for you, because uh, when I, I've had times like that, not deep crisis kind of things, but, but more on individual things like, do I really believe that? I find that when I, when I go to scripture and sometimes with commentary and oftentimes with talking to other people about it, that I respect that I feel like have wisdom, godly wisdom, that the, the questioning is not a negative doubting thing like the bad rap we give on Thomas who said, I'll believe it when I see it for myself, but rather Jesus says, Hey, look, come learn, come touch and feel for yourself. And, and so I, I encourage that type of thing. And it seems to me, obviously from your book, this has been a very healthy process for you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Jesus gave us curious, creative minds. And I, you know, as a kid, I would, I would lay in bed at night and accept Jesus into my heart and do it the next night and the next over night. And and over probably, and over. Just in case. Just in case, because again, there was a lack of certainty that was scary. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's something really beautiful in not knowing anything for sure, because it makes us for, uh, further rely and press into, press into God. I think that's actually a, like a really beautiful place to be. Mm. And so I think also growing up, there was such a fear that if I didn't say the right words, if I didn't know for sure, if I didn't ask Jesus into my heart the right way, it wouldn't count. And it was such an individual that there was so much onus on me. And so when I say what I'm about to say, I don't necessarily mean theologically. Like I believe that we have a, a conversion moment or a series of moments or a journey. But in terms of like the individual onus, I think that really we can carry each other. I mean, there in that 10 years in Seattle, when I was like wandering in a spiritual desert, my husband really carried me. And there have been times I've carried him. Mm. Or I think if we're in a healthy church or community, and when I say church, maybe that means two or three people. Like maybe that means you're taking a break, but you're you're seeking community in some way. Mm. I think we can carry each other and that that can be, maybe that sounds Pollyanna or idealized, but I do think there's something about walking together in doubt with other people. I think when we isolate ourselves and stop talking, it can be, uh, it can be really difficult. Yeah, it sounds scriptural to me, honestly. Uh, well, if you could say something to the, uh, you know, sort of the collective church, which is really unfair because it's not monolithic, but evangelicals in America, um, what, what would be the thing you would really want them to hear? Yeah, I mean, I would say two things. One, when I stand in line to take communion, um, I there is so much comfort in thinking about all the things that have gone before us and the people that are going to come after us. That if if Christ left us with the church, which you know I I believe He did, that all that means is the gathered body of believers, and that means that Christ loving us loves the church, and that that it will always remain. That there'll be some collection of people moving forward. Um, but I guess the other thing I would say is like globally or looking, scanning out a little bit, our context is certainly American or for many of us, or at least mine certainly is, but there's so much going on in the global South right now and outside of the American context that is quite encouraging. And so mm -hmm. I really take a lot of courage and hope thinking about 
everybody that was faithful before us, the people coming after us, and everybody in the world right now that are, there's so much health and excitement and movement of the spirit that um, I feel like that can keep me going for a little while, almost like a little vitamin yeah. or something. Yeah. Even though things are hard here. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. Is there anything you think the church should just stop doing? I mean, I got a long list, but I'm curious if you've, if you've thought, I just wish the church would stop doing that. The first thing I thought of is like smoke machines from stage or anything like <laughs> acrobatics or like pyrotechnics. But um, my, there's this there's this idea that I think is is uh, maybe it's like a Welsh or an Irish kind of image or, or fable. But my pastor talked about it once and I love it, this idea of building wells, not fences. I think the church has built a lot of fences mm. to keep certain people out, to keep people hemmed in that's really based in a lot of like need to maintain or, or put our foot down. Like there's just a lot of, um, a lot of, there's a wall that's been built, but I think that the idea of building wells, that Jesus is a cool drink of water, that there are reasons for people to come. It's not our job to, to like lead them there or keep them there, but to believe that our job is to be faithful and live lives that are different and set apart and that Jesus will do the work of bringing people to him is, is quite encouraging. I, I like that a lot. I, I really, I haven't heard that. And I've heard a lot of things. I like that. Wells, not fences would be a cool t-shirt. Maybe I should yeah, get those. Wells, ones. not fences. I Seriously. Uh, or wells, not walls, maybe, you know, because the fence, you, you could argue that a fence has some protective uh, things to it. But what, totally. but the idea, I think, is, is the walling off. I I believe uh, on my experience, and, and I've I talked to a lot of pastors, uh, I've traveled I travel quite a bit. Um, I, I believe that if you compare the church today, evangelical church today, to you know '80s, mid '80s, that we're actually doing a much better job of being open to those that we believe are in sin, open to those who may disagree with us on various things that we feel are important, like politics or even doctrinally. Um, I. I my perception is that we're actually doing a much better job. Certainly the denominational barriers have come way down in the last 30, 40 years. Do you, where, do you see any of that or am I just in my own bubble? Because we're I mean, in the bubble to a degree. Honestly, Renny, that's encouraging to me. Like where I sit, it's a, <laughs> the Pacific Northwest is a pretty unchurched place. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is true that if you leave Seattle city limits, there are, are plenty of churches, but um, the the thing about being here is that it's re it's refreshing because again, like I said, people aren't just going to show up because there's kind of a cultural pressure. Yeah. And so if you're here, there's a real presence and a real a real unity. Mm -hmm. Um, but that hasn't been something I've seen, and so I'm I'm encouraged by hearing you say it, honestly. Yeah. Well, no, I have, and I've also the other thing I've seen is uh, a shift towards more. Uh, meeting the practical needs of, of people. I mean, I've seen a lot of churches that have said, okay, we're going to have an unwed mother's home. We're going to have a food pantry. Uh, we're going to, instead of spending more and more on making the church look flashy or good, which I, again, I, I have no problem with a nice stage production. You know, to me, it beats one that you, that sounds terrible, <laughs> you know, but it, not giving short shrift to the practical needs of the community, engaging, going where they're at, instead of just inviting them in, going where they're at and meeting them. Yeah, uh, that's right. I've, I've seen a lot more of that. Uh, and again, I mean, we all live in our own kind of bubbles, but 
it just feels like we're doing a better job in that regard. So I hope that's right. And that's the that's the stuff that doesn't make headlines. Right. Like right. I think of my mother in law in Baltimore who's volunteering at uh, who's, who's bringing food to downtown twice a week, who's bringing people to the hospital, who's doing beautiful, quiet, faithful work of hospitality and service that is not clickbait, but it is quite powerful in her witness. And that neighborly witness, we're never going to see or know about it unless we're doing that ourselves or it's in our own sphere. So. Yeah, no, there's definitely a lot of truth to that. It's it's the nut jobs that say stupid things that get the headlines. Uh, and if we, if, we, if we allow that to... to form our image of the church yeah we'll be way off because i mean i'm, I'm a media guy but man so many people in the media are just liars <laughs> it's like disturbing at times anyway uh, it, the, the consumerism side of thing i think everybody will agree that america is a very consumeristic society you know more 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 um how do you how, how does that play into what you're talking about and, and what you see in mm-hmm. in the church yeah, I mean, you know, I I grew up going to the mall on Saturday and to church on Sunday. I mean, the, the way that we lived looked no different than any other family that didn't identify as Christians or go to church, except we went to church. Like, it didn't really filter down into our what we watched or saw. Um, I had plenty of friends that were homeschooled or, or really would almost today say that they felt kind of cloistered or cut off from culture. I was very immersed in it. Um, but... When I got to Seattle, I realized I was doing the same thing. Like the mall became the Ballard Farmer's Market, which is this really great Sunday thing. Like, you know, I had really good coffee. Like my, my the way that I bought and consumed and lived was kind of a Pacific Northwest version of my like, you know, suburban Indiana upbringing. Mm-hmm. I realized that the the way of Jesus calls us to think about using our resources differently, mm-hmm. um, of using our time differently. Um, and that's something that has just been, that has caused some practical shifts for us. I mean, thinking about tithing, thinking about volunteering or service. And the other thing I would say about consumerism is not just the actual market and wherever we live, but like online, how we show up. I'm very interested in how, especially um, women influencers often show up on Instagram or online presenting kind of a perfect life or a curated life. When, when we're like a perfectly messy life, when I think the the way of Jesus calls us to kind of decenter self and to to spend less time kind of curating um, uh, what we how we live, but just sort of actually quietly living differently. So, yeah, that is no, that is very interesting. And the, the internet, uh, the social media aspect of it, really has. Uh, it's it's like it's really changed things, but some things are still the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and when, when we go in uh, self-focused, then we are driven to do those things that only make us look good and present this, you know, perfection idea. But when we go in to make Jesus look good, it, it's a whole different approach, and it's okay to to not be okay, you know. Um, interesting. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Amen. Okay. You, you're just going to have to go check out uh, the book, Orphan Believers, and, and it'll force you to think. Uh, and it just dropped this week, so it's brand new out there. Um, do you, someone wants to know if you address tithing at all. I don't, I don't in the book. No, no, I didn't, no. I didn't that's, think a, so. that's a good mental note to, to think about writing about next time. I laughed, by the way, Randy, because you said check out the book, and I thought you meant the JC, that cartoon oh, okay. about... No, 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 your <laughs> book. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm promoting your book, not not the 
the chick publications. Though. Although, if you just want to go down the rabbit hole, that, that's an, it, oh, it's a, such a mess. It's kind of the ugly side of evangelicalism in 30 years, 40 years ago. I, I want to give you the last word, Sarah, because um, what we're touching on, we're, we're, we're having a good time and we're laughing, but this is very important for a lot of people. Um, and and my, my prayer, my real hope is that people would sometimes look past imperfect people, even imperfect pastors, imperfect churches, and and not get hung up there in the imperfection of humanity, but realize that we do have a perfect Savior. And if you, you will press through that, not get hung up there, but press towards the one who is perfect, then he can perfect us, which in the Greek is, is an idea towards wholeness. And I think a lot of people experience that lack of wholeness. Something's off, something's wrong, something's missing. And if you go to just to people or just to a church, you can, you may not get what you're looking for. But when you, I think when you do what you did, which is go to Jesus, that wholeness can start to take shape and start to form in people's lives. What do you, what do you want people to hear at the end of the day when they check out this interview or check out your book? Yeah, Randy, as you were talking, I thought of Psalm 18, 19. Uh, he brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I mean, if the if the message and life of Jesus, again, is true and compelling, um, then I think that there's a a real beauty of letting go of control. I, I just, I don't know, I loved this. This is also kind of random, but I love the movie As Good As It Gets with Jack Nicholson and from like the 90s. And there's this scene where they're Jack Nicholson is driving to Baltimore with his friends and they've all had really hard goes. And he says, some people have like beautiful lives with picnics and noodle salad. And then he looks around and he says, just nobody in this car, you know? And I, <laughs> I love that. And I think for a long time, I wanted my Christian life to be like noodle salad, picnics. Um, but I, I realized that the upside down kingdom means that through trial, through suffering, through brokenness and loss, Jesus comes close and near. And there's such a sweetness and goodness to pursuing that life, even if it doesn't mean an easy life. Um, if it doesn't mean a prosperity gospel tinge, I'm going to be healed or I'm going to be okay or financially secure. Like it, it, even if that means that we lose again and again, um, there's something true and good and eternal about the message of Jesus that brings me boundless hope. And honestly, I think of like, where else would I go? Like, you know, there's just, there's something compelling and true about the person of Jesus. And I think that, um, that for a lot of us, it's worth it. Um, even if things get worse, even if our life is hard, even if we never see the church get better in our lifetime, like I believe that the church will remain and our work is to be faithful and to, and to just ask for help. Yeah, and if God's true will for our lives is to conform us to the image of Christ, um, we should be sensitive to his sovereignty in doing that however he sees fit. And if it breaks into our own little theology, we need to let it break it at that point and then take it to Christ. And when we conform to his image, then we will be in the center of God's will. Um and that's not always easy, but it's it's good. So worth the pain. Thank you, Sarah. Is there anything else you want to mention before I let you go? I mentioned the book. I didn't show people your website. Let me do that real quick. This is uh, Sarah's website. has the book right there, sarahbillips.com. Uh, oh, you know what? I was going to ask you about this. What the heck <laughs> is, is this thing right here that says bitter scroll? 
<laughs> uh, so I, I read a, a, a monthly letter on Substack and it's called Bitter Scroll. So that's that's what that is. So that's a, a great place folks can find me and on Instagram and then and then on that website. <laughs> okay. So but you're not bitter. <laughs> no. Okay. Biblical reference. <laughs> it's a bit oh bitter as in taste, not as in attitude. bitter as in taste, not as in posture. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm glad you clarified because I saw that right before we right before you popped in for the internet and I went, what is that? She's just <laughs> she's just ranting because anyway. So you you'll have to go read it for yourself. Find out what Sarah's talking about there. There's some depth there. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun conversation. This has been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for watching. Uh, liking, following, subscribing if you haven't done that, hitting share. If maybe you know someone who's going through a little bit of a hard time. Maybe, like, hey, maybe this will encourage you because that's what we're here to do. We're here to encourage you to point to Christ, the only no one who's perfect. The rest of us are all flawed. It's true, but you can reach for the perfection. Check out Sarah's book and her website. But Lord, and I'll see you again next week here on Life Today Live. I just come as a bankrupt sinner saying, Lord, have mercy on me.